Good morning. I'm so blessed to see so many people out here. It's, uh, this is great. This is what the church is supposed to do, right? That we're just to come together. Uh, even though we are called the ecclesia or the separated ones, our true power is when we come together in community and work in community and worship in community and pray in community. And so we just want to, I just want to thank you for being here. It's a blessing. Uh, I want to take this time to introduce Joel Van Dyke. Um, I don't think you guys recognize the kind of sacrifice that he's making uh, to facilitate us uh, during this season. And uh, if you have a chance, you know, maybe we can give him a home address where you can just write notes of appreciation, uh, maybe an email where you can send something to him, see if we can't effort that for you. But I just want you guys to give a very warm and loving Welcome to Joel Van Dyke. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks. This wasn't in the middle. There we go. Okay. Wow, you guys never cease to amaze me how busy you are. Announcement after announcement after announcement. <laughs> so it is, um, yeah, I was just praying beforehand and, and uh, in the room back there and preparing to come to be with you all. Is this working okay? Sounds kind of weird to me. Yeah? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, and just, you know, with Phil's introduction, I just, I just sense a, uh, just a real joy. Uh, God's given me just a real joy. Uh, in in these times with with you all, and uh, it's it's a gift. It really is to have this chance to drive an hour each Sunday. Well, hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, there's a lot of cops on seventy five. You know, <laughs> I got to make sure I leave plenty of time because I can't speed. Um, so just to have that chance, and then to uh, to be with you all, and then to drive back. The only obviously frustration is the lack of connectedness at a more intimate level, but I, I know God's going to open that door up as well, and, and there'll be lots of time for, for that. But on behalf of my, my wife, Marilyn, our daughter, Sophia, um, who uh, are back in Sarasota, and as Phil said, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a sacrifice to, to really feel God's calling at this point of our lives for me to be able to be with you on these Sundays, and they hold down a lot uh, back home in order for, for that to happen, and so uh, it is uh, a real gift, and as I prayed this morning, I, just, I was just filled with, with joy, with the opportunity to uh, be here with, with you all, um, and so uh, I, I appreciate that gift. And I say that because we got a doozy today. This is, this is not going to be a feel-good, rah, 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 I'm glad I went to church today uh, experience. And I alluded to this uh, when we referenced the Geography of Grace book that, that many of you, are, I, I, I think, are having a chance to read through, etc. And we made that little comment, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, don't read chapter one, right? Because I, I want to be able to explore that with you, and I probably 
won't ask for a show of hands how many sinners we have <laughs> in the room who disobeyed that, that request. Um, but if you are a sinner and you disobeyed the request, you, you, you know a little bit about what might be coming. And I, I say that with fear and trembling because uh, at the baseline of a geography of grace is the text that we're going to unpack today. Um, and uh, I'll unpack a little bit more about why I say that here in a minute. But I want to start out with just, as I do each week, just a chance for us in North America to have a second to kind of have our gaze shift outside of our own nation as well and be aware of and prayerful for what others around the world are experiencing. And so I wanted to share an issue that's bubbling to the surface, especially in Latin America, but in other places as well, that I'm hearing about from the colleagues of mine that are in places in really, really rough places in cities all over the world. Um, and it's this issue right now that this is not on the news anywhere in the U.S. You're not going to know anything about this unless you have friends in places of Latin America where this is occurring. But ever since quarantine hit, um, in, in Latin America it was a little bit later than what we had, but since the time that quarantine and lockdowns occurred, there has been a huge rise in domestic violence and especially the disappearance of young girls and women. The numbers are staggering, especially in Peru where there's been up to 1,200 reports of women, they have no idea where they've gone. And 70% of those are younger than 18. And so there are manifestations or people rising to the streets begging for, for help and women claiming about the, you know, sharing their hearts and their passions for their sisters and their, their daughters who are missing. And in the midst of, of lockdowns and government's focus on a bunch of other things, what's been missing, and you'll see why this is especially relevant for our text today, has been the pain and the suffering of women in places, and again, especially the numbers in Latin America are excruciatingly painful to see. And some of it comes from a machista kind of culture where men can do what they want to do and there's an expectation that they rule the homes and so women's rights are minimized and they're often, you know, pushed and relegated to the margins of society. And, and what's scary in Guatemala right now is while the numbers in many other countries are rising ever since um, quarantine hit with reports, et cetera, of domestic violence and sexual abuse, et cetera, in Guatemala, it's been 75% less reporting. And my friends in Guatemala are terrified. I don't know if you've heard any of this, but they know of so many cases of young women, and especially in the indigenous communities that are just disappearing, and the problem with the reporting so much is that they're cut off from being able to make any kinds of reports. And I want us to be conscious of that as you see some of these Manifestaciones, uh, how do you say that in English? Um, yeah, but man, um, protests or marches. Um, and you see the banners and, and the claiming, you know, pleading for help in the midst of the violence. And this image of this young girl, no quiero que me maten, I don't want to be killed. 
it's, it's just it's an issue, again, that's not in the news, that's not being talked about, but in, in, in certain places around the world, it is devastatingly painful, and people are living in the disappearance and the femicidio, the violence against women, which is excruciatingly painful. And again, I share that by way of prayer for us going into the passage that, that uh, we're going to be unpacking together. So let's just, let's just pray for a moment. God, we just... We want to lift up a situation that perhaps for many of us is something we, we have not been aware of, um, hasn't, doesn't show up on Apple News reports on our iPhones. Uh, it's not something that is getting much press, God, but on the streets of Lima, Peru, in Guatemala, in, in places like Managua, Nicaragua, in Buenos Aires, Santiago in Chile, there, there are voices, women's voices, clamoring for, for help and domestic violence that is surging because of the effects of government lockdowns and quarantines and, and, and the lack of an ability to get help and go to shelters, all of whom also have been shut down in the midst of, of the situation at large. God, we just, we just want to pray for the church in these places we want to pray for the body of Christ that would stand up and engage the reality of these situations in their streets and in their communities to bring the word and the message and the incarnated gospel of Jesus Christ to hurting people and for justice to be served, God, in places where it seemingly is just dissipating into, into thin air. So God, we in the spirit of this little girl holding up this sign, we pray for the little girls and for the women in these countries that are especially vulnerable, that are especially susceptible, that are, that are missing and being abused and are just, God, just clamoring for, for hope, for help, for, for, for relief in the midst of such oppressive circumstances. And God, we just join them our sisters, our sisters today, we join them in clamoring for your attention, for your guidance, for your help, for the raising up of your people to step in the gaps um, and to fill the voids in the places where you can be glorified and honored. We thank you for the chance to pray and to unite ourselves um, with our extended family around the world. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, this is our map that we've been following a little bit, um, again, with my beautiful graphics, right? But um, we've had some guides that have led us through this geography of grace. A woman from Syrophoenicia, uh, a guy named Mephibosheth, who was left in a place with no, no crop and came limping to the palace where he thought he would die, but yet he was given a seat uh, with a tablecloth that covered his feet. Then we looked at Elisha's servant, weak, timid, and distracted, unable to see the horses and chariots of fire around them. And then Hagar um, led us into the eyes of grace, the castaway, the marginalized, really a, a connection, a deep, deep-rooted connection with her story and the one that we're going to unpack today. We then looked at outsiders and insiders and a bleeding woman for 12 years and a daughter of Japheth who was 12 years old and saw the connection and the healing of the woman from the inside. The princess was routed through an engagement with a woman on the outside, the castaway. 
and understood and looked at the geography of grace as Jesus seemingly took his time so much that the princess died, but at the end both are restored to life. Then we looked at the widow from the town of Nain and the clash of these two parades moving in, a parade of death coming out of the city, a parade of life coming to the city, and at the city gate they collide. It's a choke, a collision of these two parades, and, and we see how life took over and won and led to um, uh, the healing of the son and the restoring of him being given back to his mother. In the last week, we took a little walk down the Emmaus Road and talked about a friend on the road and the hospitality of grace as we explored what it meant for Cleopas and his friend or his wife. We don't have the name. The invitation was, you put your name on Cleopas' friend. So you and Cleopas last week took a walk away from Jerusalem towards someplace, Emmaus, of which no one knows where it was, right? A place unidentified today. We don't know where it was. We have some ideas, but they're on a journey to a, really away from the epicenter of, of Christ's activity in Jerusalem. And we talked about the journey of the year 2020 and how in many ways it feels like a journey out of what seemed, out of the Jerusalem of everything that seemed to be working for us. And then 2020 has been a journey of disorientation, of being on a path of which we don't know where we're headed. And we, you and Cleopas took that journey and then met a stranger on the road whom your eyes were open to and eventually you ended up with the breaking of the bread running back to Jerusalem as fast as your sandals would take you. At night even, because it didn't matter you needed to get back because your eyes were open to the resurrected Lord. And we talked about the geography that comes from, from such a journey. I didn't show this slide last week, at least I don't think I did, but I wanted to just use it as a summary for last week and where we're heading to today. That in many ways, if you look at these, uh, you know, the, the, the one miracle that occurs throughout all four of the Gospels, that's the feeding of the 5,000. The same thing happens in all of those. If there's only one miracle that occurs in all four Gospels, it seems like there's something in the pattern of that miracle that might be significant to take a, take a look at, right? And we saw what Jesus did with the bread. Um, he took the bread and the fish. He blessed it. He then broke it and then gave it to the 5,000 men and their women and children who needed to be restored. And then in the upper room, the Last Supper... Jesus with his disciples, the same pattern. He takes the bread and he, he blesses it. He, he breaks it and then he gives it to the disciples. And then we saw that same pattern last week on the Emmaus Road. Jesus ends up in Cleopas' house. He's invited in as the guest. But as soon as he walks in, he grabs the bread and becomes the host. He flips the script. And what does he do? The same thing. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives. Their eyes then are opened and Cleopas and his wife or friend run back to Jerusalem. The point is there's a shape to life and mission. It seems the New Testament wants us to understand. And that's a Eucharistic shape. Eucharist, one word for the Lord's Supper or for communion, the idea of giving thanks. It's that shape that is life and mission, right? 
And so what happened to Jesus happens to us. We are taken, blessed, broken, given in love that we might become the spoken word of God. And there are implications for incarnational leadership because incarnational leaders are formed and shaped by the Jesus meal, which inducts them into the full life cycle of transformation. And you notice what's in the middle of those five images? Right dead center in the middle? Brokenness. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is so key to an understanding of the geography of grace that we are given to the world out of brokenness. As opposed to the way we like to form our theologies in avoidance of brokenness. <laughs> oh, we work so hard to avoid pain, to avoid suffering. We sing in such a ways and deny it in Romans 8, 28, everyone to death because we can't deal with brokenness. But that's the way we're given to the world. And Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. We are sent into the world the way the Father sent Jesus. And Jesus such sends us. We are chosen blessed, and then it's in the crucible of our brokenness that we are given to the world around us so we can become the spoken word of God. Now that has incredible relevance for today in the season in which we're living, in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of job loss, in the midst of suffering of so many people. It has a lot to say to you as a congregation in the season in which you're living. What does it mean that that there's brokenness that you're sorting out as a congregation. Does that, is that something to avoid? Is that something to run from? Or is it dead center in the middle of how God wants to give you to the world? That leads us to our passage for today, which comes from the book of Judges. Judges 19. As we look at the least of these, the scandal of grace. Now, i got to just do something here before we dive into the passage, because I need to give us some context a second, so that we have an entry point into this passage. Now, there's such a thing called the ministry of lament. And I don't think there's ever been a time, and I'm, I'm 50 what? My, old, my daughter will tell me, I can't ever, I'm in the early 50s, I can't remember the exact numbers, I don't care. I just throw something out there and then she corrects me, right? But, but I can't think of a time in my lifetime where the ministry of lament is more needed than today. And I connect with an organization called Authenticos, and it's a bunch of artists and creatives from all over the world. And I always laugh when I'm with them because I say, I can't draw a stick person with creativity. I don't got any artistic bone in my body. And they always say, well, you can talk pretty good. So is that artistry? I don't know, Right? But, but the idea is this image called I am art. Their perspective is I am is the artist of all artists. And each and every one of us is a created masterpiece by the I am. So you can look in the mirror and say I am art because God has created you. The artist of all artists has created you unique and special, unlike anybody else, with an artistry to the calling upon your life. So it's that group, I said, in the middle of all this stuff going on, I said to them, you know what, I would love to explore a little bit the theology of lament with a bunch of artists from around the world. And so we put together a virtual workshop. 
And if any of you are artists or creatives and you want access to that, I, I can get you all the recordings of it. We're having our last session of five this coming Thursday. But we talk about lament as the poetry of truth-telling. Now, what I want to do is just take you for, um, take you, um, well, yeah, what I'm going to do here is, is take about five minutes to run you through about 15 hours of teaching on lament, just so it will introduce us into our passage today in a way that will really give us the right way in. So there are five core elements of lament. There's a direct address to God, not talking about God, talking to God. There's a room for complaint, honest fist clenching at God with complaining. God is not afraid of that in us. Look at the Psalms. David's like, God, where are you? Just fist clenching, direct complaining. God is not afraid of that. Lament is an invitation to that reality. And then there's words that reassure the speaker because when you are able to talk honestly and complain directly to God, you become reassured by your own voice because you have a space to be honest about what you're going through. Then there's a motivation for God to act. God, do something. Oh, Lord, how long, oh, Lord, how long is the question within the Psalms over and over again. God, you got to do something, and always then that something is a petition for justice. So, so lament is always framed by those core elements. And our passage today is really the entry. In some ways, it's the most... <laughs> It's the most deep pit within Scripture where if you can't engage it through lament and understand these five characteristics, you're going to be completely disorientated. Now, hold on, what am I doing here? Got too excited, and I forget which button to push. Oh, here, I, I had it backwards. Okay. I'm like, I'm, I'm on the back of this thing. Where's my button? Okay, um, so here's the problem. After an extensive tour of the U.S. German uh, of the U.S. German pastor theologian Helmut Schleichel was asked what he had observed as the greatest deficiency among North American Christians, and this is what he said: they have an inadequate view of suffering. That's the problem in North America. They have an inadequate view of suffering. And what happens when you have an inadequate view of suffering? There are consequences to an incapacity to suffer, like the inability to articulate or accept one's own suffering. Secondly, an inability to enter imaginatively into the suffering of others. And when those two things occur, there's always a search for a scapegoat. Someone else you can blame for what's going on. So in North American culture, with an incapacity to suffer, these things become relevant, so profoundly so, which is why a passage like today needs to be in the lexicon of what's preached from pulpits. And I've never heard it preached in a pulpit in my entire life. But it's because of our inadequate view of suffering that leads to an inability to articulate our own, think imaginatively into the suffering of others, and then look for scapegoats. And boy, do we see that today's world or not. We can scapegoat that one, that one, that side, that side, that position over there. Just scapegoat and blame shift because we can't gaze upon the reality of the suffering around us. So this is what happens, Walter Brueggemann says. When God must be praised at all times, prayer becomes a lie, a cover-up, and a warrant for the status quo. When, when God must be praised at all times, 
prayer becomes a lie because how many times do you walk into church and you've got to put on the happy face and, and, and everything is great and wonderful and pretend it's great and you might have had a horribly difficult week, but there's no time or place to be honest about that. You've got to put on the face that everything is wonderful and beautiful. And then that leads to a lie an inability to engage the reality of what's happening. So here's, here are the five sessions that we've been exploring in our Lament Workshop on the Poetry of Truth-Telling. Beauty and affliction, bringing pain and suffering into view, giving voice to pain, and then the art of mending as opposed to fixing. Now, there's an hour and a half teaching session on each one of those. And, and I, just, I just want to put in front of you a couple of the images that animate this so that as we enter into our passage today, we can explore what some of this might look like. Is that a beautiful image? Or is that a grotesquely ugly image? Is it ugly or is it beautiful? With the initial shock, it's interesting to see where many people's eyes go. They go to the emaciated body of the young girl who seemingly is near the end of her life. And we might want to close our eyes to that because it's just too ugly to look at. But a continual gaze at that image begins to show other elements. As one looks at where the light is coming from and where does it land? What's it like that a mother would not bathe her daughter from outside the tub but get in with her to embrace the reality of the suffering of her daughter, not distant but immersed in that reality? And the point of that is this, that there are two things that awaken the heart to God, both beauty and affliction. Our passage today is one of deep, deep, deep affliction. And it's one of the ways our hearts are opened up to God. We like the beauty side of things, and we get that pretty well. But how is it that affliction, suffering, pain, awaken our hearts to God? That's the question around beauty and affliction. Gregory of Nicaea, reflecting on St. Basil, said this, he has an ambidextrous faith because he welcomes pleasures with his right hand and afflictions with his left, convinced that both will serve God's design for him. I'm sorry this is in both languages, but I've been, this is a bilingual workshop and I didn't have time to fix them, so... Um, if you prefer the Spanish, lele en español está bien, right? And then we look at this idea that the first condition of healing is always to bring the pain and suffering into view, according to Kathleen O'Connor in her book, Lamentations and the Tears of the World. The first condition of healing is to bring pain and suffering into view, which is exactly what our theologies typically don't allow to happen. We obscure pain and suffering. We push it away. We refuse to bring it into view, and therefore we never take the first step towards healing. And then there's jazz theology, <laughs> giving voice to pain. 
I don't know how many musicians are here, but jazz music is this incredible uh, way of, of, of creating music different than classic music, right, which is following the score. Jazz music is an engagement where you co-create something with a group of folks, and there are some elements there. How does jazz give voice to pain? It gives permission to risk going off the script. There's a freedom to fail. It's dynamic and dialogical, and it's created in community. That's the beauty of what jazz music does. And there's a note within jazz music and blues called the flatted fifth. Or the blue note. Chapter one of Geography of Grace. The blue note. It gives voice to pain. And that's a large part of what the Geography of Grace invites us into. Going into scripture looking for the blue notes. Where are the flatted fifths? It's a note that has no resolve. It's a note that's, it just doesn't fit. It's a way of jazz or a blues. Miles Davis perfected this. But it's a note without resolve that gives voice to something that needs voice, and you can't do it in some nice, pretty way with a beautiful little ribbon. Scripture has all kinds of blue note passages. The problem is we don't allow them to give voice to our pain because we ignore them and we relegate them to places other than pulpits on Sundays. So I, wanna, I want us to use this video to, as our summary of lament and invitation into, 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 into Judges 19. It's just three and a half minutes long. And it will be probably, for some of you, somewhat disorientating. Um, please don't try to fix it. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't try to politically argue out what you see or don't see. That's not the point of this. It's an invitation into a perspective of our world today and how one artist, well, a group of artists, are seeking to give images and voice to the pain around them. So, so watch it with that spirit as this introduces us to our blue note of Judges 19. So, go ahead. This is not my gospel that builds these walls between us, drawing borders that separate, raising flags of supremacy, empires of hate in the name of freedom. This is not my gospel that casts the immigrant out Pulling mothers' urgent hands from the cries of their children. Expelling souls to isolation because of the color of their skin, their sexuality, the gender, the class, the nation they live in. This is not my gospel that spits on the face of God, lashing his image with words of rejection, warmongering, dominating the weak. Diminishing salvation to a conditional thing While hope lies lost and bleeding Weeping for relief This is not my gospel That turns communities inwards Planting distrust in their hearts Towards the beauty of difference Labeling neighbors as enemies And defining us by division this is not my gospel with its eyes full of pride When injustice is clothed in lies When grace is caged, we face the great divide Humanity displaced from love My gospel is love 
who crossed the chasm between heaven and earth, speaking worth to all in endless benevolence, love who sat in the dirt with the rejected, erasing their shame with the touch of acceptance, who reached for those society deserted, embracing the leper, the filthy, the hurting, Love who clutched the souls of his rivals in nail-pierced hands, holding them free from hell's vicious venom, declaring them brother, sister, cherished, forgiven. Love who tore the temple veil, divine grasping flesh, flesh clutching divine, crying, you are mine, precious mankind. Awake from your slumber and open your eyes to love who walked through the walls, crossing the divide with burning passion, calling for those who have lost their place, breaking tomb after tomb after tomb to reveal a world of eternal embrace. This is my gospel. This is the cry heard in the night of unrest, clutched close to heartbroken chests, crying, reach for me, reach past the borders, Reach to the wounds that have torn us apart. Plant seeds of compassion where malice has grown. Throw your arms open and welcome the forsaken home. Break down the walls that hate has raised. Turn your eyes to the face of the shame and realize that it is mine. It is yours. We are one reborn and remade. Let the stars fall. Let mercy cascade, let the heavens pour, I gave you my all. I will give it again, and again, and again. I throw down my kingship, I throw down my fame. To be with you in the rejection, to hold you in the pain. You are not the outsider, nor a child of shame. Let the depths proclaim to the heights above, that you are loved. Judges 19. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Levites, of course, were the religious leaders, right? They were the pastors of the community, of the Israel nation. And it's interesting that it says he lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. He's in the wrong place. Levites were the pastors and they were meant to live in the Levitical cities where worship was centered. So here's a pastor, a religious leader, in the wrong place. And it says he took a concubine. Now this is... I can't clean this up, okay? <laughs> um, but a concubine is not a prostitute. It's not a maidservant. A concubine is a sex slave. The taking of someone 
in this case, a woman, for the sexual gratification of this man. A piece of property for him to do what he pleases. But it says in verse 2 that she was unfaithful to him. And she left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem of Judah. And after she had been there for four months, her husband went to persuade her to return. Now, now here's where the English language is so sad. <laughs> because you get the image, he went to persuade her to return. Right? It's like, it, it see, it's so dry. It's so removed of any emotive response. In Spanish, the way this is translated, él salió para hablarle amorosamente. He went to speak to her lovingly. Literally, in Hebrew, the idiom is, he went to speak to her heart tenderly. Now, you've got to get that understanding. He didn't just go to persuade her to return. Something has transpired in the heart of this Levite. He doesn't just want his piece of property back. He's begun to capture something much deeper than just having a slave for his benefit. It seems like some intimate feelings have begun to develop. And he wants to speak to her heart tenderly. Don't, don't lose that. So he had with him his servant and two donkeys. And she took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together again, and afterwards the woman's father said, please stay another night and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, the father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there another night, and on the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till the afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave his father-in-law, the woman's father said again, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here, and the day, uh, the day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself early tomorrow morning. You can get up and then be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, five, six days, he had had it. Finally, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine, whom he had gone to talk to lovingly. When they were first, when they, when they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. But his master replied, no, 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 we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites because there is a hospitality code of our own people. We need to go where we can be hospitable. So we will go to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah of Ramah and spend the night there in that place. So they went on, and the man set out as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went in and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. 
Here they are in Israel with Benjamites, a fellow tribe, and they're sitting in the city square, and no one's offering them hospitality. But that evening, an old man came from the hill country of Ephraim, a foreigner, someone from outside of that place extends hospitality that the very ones who lived in the place refused to extend. He was living in Gibeah. The inhabitants of the place were Benjamites. In case you forgot, these are Israelites. He came in from his work in the fields, and when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going, and where did you come from? That question ring a bell to you? It's the exact same question the angel of the Lord asked Hagar in the desert. Where are you going? And where did you come from? I want to hear your story. I want to enter the reality of your narrative. Where are you going and where did you come from? Beautiful question, trying to locate the other. The Levite answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken us in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and, and bread and wine for, our, for ourselves, your servants, me, the women, and the, and the young man with us. We don't need anything other than beds to sleep in. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night here in the square. So he took him into his house, fed his donkeys, and after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and to drink. Now, put on your seatbelts. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city who are the people in the city? The Benjamites. Some of the wicked men of the city, the Benjamites, young ones, surrounded the house. And pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Heaven forbid you would do this. It would be horrible. But look, here is my, my own virgin daughter. And his concubine, his sex slave. Look, I'll bring them out to you and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. They're just women. They don't matter. They're social. They're not high on the social ladder. Who really cares? You, I mean, you can't, for no way can you touch the man in my home. But, but here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took the Levite's concubine. We have no idea whatever happened to his daughter. If she went as well, no more mention. But we do know that he took the concubine and sent her outside to them. Again, horrible translation in the sense of it misses all that's really happening. He didn't just say, come on, honey, I'm going to send you out for a picnic. 
Literally, it is a thrusting of her, a violent expulsion into the pelvises of the men that were waiting for her. It is violent. It, the Hebrew, it, this is, it is, we, we sanctify and clean up scripture so much. That, that is not what's going, this, this, this is a violent, violent gesture on the taking of this woman and throwing her violently into these waiting men, wicked men. And they raped her and they abused her throughout the entire night. And at dawn, they finally let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying. She fell down at the door and laid there until daylight. When her master, the Levite, the pastoral presence in the community of Israel, evidently had had a nice night's sleep, a big breakfast, and when he opened the door to go on his way, he literally had to step over his concubine laying in the doorway. She had fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And she, he said to her, now remember how this story started? I'm going to go speak to her heart tenderly, amorosamente. He's never spoken a word to her the entire story until right now. This is the only thing he said to her since the moment he left. And he says, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts, sending them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine. We must do something. So speak up. I don't think there's a more profound blue note in all of Scripture than this story. I don't think there's anyone that identifies as least last and lost in all of Scripture more profoundly than this woman who has no name, who was a piece of property, who was gang raped all night long and then cut up into pieces. I, I can't think of anyone in all of Scripture who embodies the reality of that image. And yet, we have to ask ourselves, why is this in Scripture? And why have we never talked about it? Did God maybe go to the bathroom at a certain point when the canon was being produced and at that moment someone slipped this one in and it kind of got by him? 
Why is this story here? What is seemingly happening here? This, as I mentioned, is the baseline for the entire idea of geography of grace. That's why it's chapter one in the book, and I got in big trouble with our publisher because the first one we worked with refused to have this chapter one. And in fact, we broke contract because of it. Because for us, the integrity was... This is the baseline of the entirety of the conversation. We cannot relegate it to some appendix somewhere else. This conversation needs to start right here to be unpacked and explored. So we broke contract with our publisher and went a different direction. But why is this story here? Scripture gives voice to the voiceless over and over and over and over again, declaring God's solidarity with the victim. Yet this is the very thing that is in such danger of being lost within the North American church today, with our penchant for feeling good stories that uplift and inspire, that keep things superficial, that never want to deal with the reality, listen, that the most of the rest of the world deals with on a daily basis. Do you realize that's why the church and Christianity seem so irrelevant to people suffering in pain around this world? Because this reality is their reality. They know this story. They've lived this story. We often read this story at the garbage dump overlooking in Guatemala City with groups that come. We, we look at the, the, in fact, I got pictures of that. Um, if we can just put them up there. Right here, so here's the garbage dump. And we unpack this story looking out over that image of 11,000 people scavenging through the garbage of Guatemala City to try to eke out an existence. And we sit here in circles like this and we unpack and discuss stories like Judges 19. And then we give people time on their own to sit and look out over the reality of scavengers trying to eke out existence in the garbage dump of Guatemala City. And people so often want to demonize the church in Guatemala. Where's the church? How could they let this happen? And the question for us is, what does a story like Judges 19 have to say to people whose entire lives are marginalized, ostracized, who are cut up and dismembered. They have no access to decent health care. Education systems out the door. Generations of families living together, scavenging through garbage. And I, and I tell people on this, on this, on this platform here, and this is in the cemetery, looking out over the garbage dump. I said, so if you were catapulted right now, down there right now, to go share the gospel with the people down there, what would you say? Four spiritual laws and a track is not going to cut it. Some memorized formula of the Romans' road is not going to cut it. Some superficial 828 thing, it's just like, that's not going to cut it. What people need to understand in pain and suffering is that there is a God who understands pain and suffering and is in the midst with them like the mother in the bathtub. God bathes in the midst of our suffering and our pain. He doesn't close his eyes to it. He would solidarity enters and engages that reality. There is a sacrament of silence in the way that God responds in the presence of his own suffering son on the cross, 
Remember that, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there's a sacrament of silence from the Father. There is wisdom in doing the same when confronted with the reality of another's pain. To, to hold and to be held by the pain of another long enough to be transformed by it. And I believe that in this day and age, so profoundly so, that the church of Jesus Christ is being invited into a new way of understanding and entering in the pain and suffering of those around us in solidarity with it through an incarnational perspective where we can begin asking questions about the gospel we thought we understood. I pray that's what the shaking up is happening in the church today. Not just getting back to normal with all the things and all the programs and all the activities that we used to all love to do, but, but what about the world around us? People who are dying in dismemberment and marginalization and pain and suffering and all they hear from Christians is some superficial thing about the gospel that sounds good to them in their cute little way but has no relevance whatsoever to the reality of their daily lives. The wisdom of silence in the presence of another's pain is not a, not a license to avoid the faith challenge that stories like this, like this place on us. There is a way to speak from within silence, and we must not shy away even from the theological challenges that these stories and these circumstances present. To speak authentically and with authority of God while we stand at the harsh, demanding ground of human suffering is precisely our task at hand. And it is a dangerous and a difficult road that forces us into a geography of grace that is a place so excruciatingly difficult to enter and to navigate. So if the gospel, by definition, means good news, where is the good news in that story we just read? Is there any semblance of hope? They want to do something about it. Why do you say that? Okay. You're referring to the last verse of the passage, right? Verse 30. Which is the interpretive key to unlocking this text. Consider it. Build counsel and speak out. Consider it. The question biblically here is whose voice is this at the end of the passage? It's a new voice. It's a narrator. It's a voice. Some folks think, well, this is the Levite coming back and saying, what he should have said when he realized how wrong he was. But if you look what happens in chapter 20 and 21, the Levite's a complete idiot. He, he, he's making double truths and he's trying to make excuses for what happened and blame shifting on others. I, I, I don't think it was within him to say something this profound. I think this voice is coming as a narrator coming to profoundly give perspective around this, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. So consider it. 
Think about it. Remember, he went to speak to her heart tenderly. Are you willing to reflect tenderly on the heart of this woman? On the heart of her plight? Are you willing to open your eyes to that reality? Consider it. And then, and then once you've considered it, build counsel. Find some others who are willing to do the same. Who will sit and gaze upon the suffering of the other with you. If you do it only in isolation, you're going to get so disorientated, discouraged, and disgruntled, you're going to become useless to the world around you. But getting with some others around whom are committed to that same kind of reflection, that same kind of consideration of the hurt and pain in the world around you, building counsel with others, then and only then, and notice the order of the exhortations, then you have something worth speaking out about. How is it that the church seems to flip that order <laughs> or completely to avoid the considering and the building council and wants to get right into the pulpit with the microphone on the radio and on the internet to proclaim what needs to happen? Telling the truth in the brass kind of way that, that others need to hear it. When what the narrator here is bringing to our consideration is the Levite... We're, we're being asked to consider the heart of this unnamed concubine in the way that the Levite failed to do. But what does the voice expect us to find there? Because then we are asked to consider her heart in the context of community, to take counsel together, doing collectively what we would have or should have done personally. But what does the voice expect us to see there? And, and then we are invited finally to speak out only after having considered the unnamed woman's heart tenderly and building a counsel with others that do the same. That is the only time that we have the authenticity and the integrity to speak out. But what does that voice expect us to say when we finally speak? Lest we consider this to be something that's not really relevant for us, I went on the uh, internet last night for about five minutes and did some screenshots. Shooting investigation, Fort Myers, breaking news. One injured in shooting at Sunrise Towers apartments in Fort Myers. Fort Myers, at least one dead in shooting on Winkler Avenue in Fort Myers. Fort Myers attorney accused of raping ex-employee, asking clients for sex as payment in lawsuit claims. Lehigh Acres man arrested, accused of repeatedly raping a teen. Arrest made and rape of teen in Fort Myers beach men's bathroom. Fort Myers beach man arrested for rape and burglary. One dead, two injured in shooting on Fort Myers Beach. One killed in drive-by shooting in Fort Myers. Who's considering that reality in Fort Myers? Who's building counsel around the reality of the pain and suffering of this community? Because I know you want to speak out in truth and in love and life and bring the gospel. Not bring the gospel. You don't bring the gospel anywhere. You bear witness to the gospel. You bear witness to the gospel as it 
as the Holy Spirit dances in your communities. And I know you want to be a church that bears witness to that, but in what ways are you considering and building counsel around the realities of the situations of the unnamed concubines, the dismembered, pillaged people of your community, such that you have something worth speaking out with that engages the reality of the pain around you. I didn't plan to tie this up in a nice, cute way, and I'm not. I'm about ready to end, and I, it's going to be some disorientation, hopefully, that will last for you for the entirety of the week. But if you want to get really depressed, if this passage hasn't discouraged you enough, go read chapter 20 and 21 tonight. Because our passage, we started with the idea of Israel had no king. Judges ends, Israel had no king. You want no king? Judges shows you exactly what that looks like. And for those in the case of Israel who did not consider, build counsel in order to speak out, what happens? Judges 20 and 21 happen. You think Judges 19 is discouraging enough. What started... As the brutal rape of one sex slave becomes the brutal rape and enslavement of 600 innocent women. What started out as the story of one man failing to direct his heart and speak tenderly to his lover becomes the story of an entire nation that does the same. And one death turns into 25,000 Benjamites being slaughtered. For not considering and building counsel so that speaking out in truth can be done appropriately, you see the results. As the book of Judges concludes. So where is the good news in this story? Is there any? It was recorded, so her story is captured. Her narrative has been preserved. It's here for us to read. I just wish we'd read it. But let me ask you this. There's one little detail of this story that is absolutely crucial for the hope that springs forth from it. When the Bible repeats something twice, it means something significant. When it repeats it three times, that's Trinitarian, Right? It's really important. But when you go Trinitarian plus one and say something four times, it's like, boom, don't miss this. Four times we're told where this concubine was from. Do you remember? Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judah. Do you know anyone else who was born in Bethlehem of Judah? who upon the night of his betrayal took the bread representing his body and broke it. As we walked last week down the Emmaus Road with Cleopas and we got into the home and Jesus took the bread, well, the guest, right, the visitor, the visitor whom we didn't know who he was, when he broke the bread, our eyes were opened and we saw Jesus. If we reflect long enough, 
on the heart of this unnamed woman. We will come not only to know her heart, but her name as well. And we will dare to give her the dignity of a name that she hasn't had for 3,000 years. We will even dare to name her the name that is above all names. Huh. So as grace flows downhill and the geography of grace and pools up into passage, even like Judges 19, we are confronted with what looks like a cesspool. It is offensive and scandalous beyond words, but if we can hold our gaze long enough on the pain and the suffering of the woman, she teaches us a hard but liberating truth that she was not alone in her abandonment, that she was not alone when handed over to the mob, that she was not alone when she was gang-raped and beaten, that she was not alone when cut into 12 pieces and handed out to Israel. For God was with her that night. And the connection to the place of Bethlehem of Judah, connecting her broken body with the broken body of Christ. God, too, was abused, beaten, raped, and dismembered. And so where is God? God is with us, and particularly among the least who suffer the most. Understand, Emmanuel, God with us. God suffers with us even and especially in our most terrifying, powerless times. This is what the gospel dares to suggest. And this story invites us to consider that gospel, to build counsel around it, so we can be given to the world in the truth of it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, for your word. Thank you for this unnamed concubine whose broken body, whose dismemberment, whose pain and suffering is recorded in Scripture for us to gaze, to gaze upon it, to open our eyes and to consider the reality of her suffering and pain, but also the suffering and pain of those around us, the suffering and pain of all the people in our world that represent that unnamed concubine. Oh, God, please Remove the callousness of our own selfish worlds in which we like to just put comfort around us and, and, and complain about hanging fingernails and things that just have no, no relevance in the reality of what's happening in the world today. And we long to live a gospel that is tangible, that speaks to the reality of the pain and the suffering of people who when they hear a story like this can say, now that I understand because you just painted a picture of my life. And there is a manual, God, with us. God, thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the disorientation. Thank you for the invitation to consider, to build counsel, and to speak out in love, in life, and in truth from the places of integrity, from the places of joint solidarity and suffering getting off our high horses of judgmental criticism or about others, but loving the other in ways, God, that you dance and you shine and you shower truth of a God who is present in the bathtub of the world's sin, loving us in the midst 
of what looks to be such desperation and worthlessness and helplessness, but we see the light of your love shining on the face of your presence among us. And as you were sent, so send you us. In your name, in your name alone, we pray these things.